0: Well, we're going to jump into the sermon uh, now, and I'd like to start by, by sharing a little bit from an article that I found this week that I found fascinating. So this is from Scientific American Magazine, which is a magazine about, guess, it, guess what it is, science. It's a Scientific American uh, Magazine that, you know, been around for many years, and there was an article that caught my attention online, and the title is this. It says, Psychiatry Needs to Get Right with God. Um, And so in the print edition, you know, sometimes they have like a more standard thing and then they know if they have online, they're trying to get your attention with the online, you know, title. So I don't know if that's what it's called in the print edition, but that one caught my attention. Anytime culture is talking about spirituality, about faith, I want to hear what they're saying. And so I read this article and it started out this way. Let me share a little bit um, from the article with you. In the early days of the pandemic, economists Jeanette Benson of the University of Copenhagen examined Google searches for the word prayer in 95 countries. She identified that they hit an all-time global high in March 2020. Think about what's happening in the world in March 2020. An inc- increase occurred in lockstep with the number of COVID-19 cases identified in each country. Stateside, according to the Pew Research Center, 55% of Americans prayed to end the, the spread of the novel coronavirus in March 2020. And nearly one quarter reported that their faith increased the following month, despite limited access to houses of worship. The article continues to to say, in the past year, American mental health sank to the lowest point in history. Incidents of mental disorders increased by 50% compared with before the pandemic, alcohol and other substance abuse surged, and young adults were more than twice as likely to seriously consider suicide than they were in 2018, yet the only group... To see improvements in mental health during the past year were those who attended religious services at least weekly, and it says virtually or in person, 46% report excellent mental health today versus 42% one year ago. As former congressional representative Patrick J. Kennedy and journalist Stephen Fried wrote in their book, A Common Struggle, the two most underappreciated treatments for mental disorders are love and faith. The article's talking about psychiatry and how psychiatry has been trying to think about faith. How does faith fit? It, it just says that uh, out of all the medical professions, out of all the, all the doctors, psychiatrists are the least likely to be people of faith. So, the people that are, are trying to help people with their mental health, often faith is not calculated. It's not something they think about, it's not kind of built into the current models and ways of thinking about. Uh, mental health. And this article is trying to bridge that gap. It's saying we should be considering people's mental health when putting plans together, or people's spiritual life, when putting plans in place for people's mental health. And it talks about a study that they're doing where they're trying to combine cognitive behavioral therapy with prayer and, and, and spiritual services and things like that. And pretty interesting, and it's worth a read. In fact, I'll, I'll put a link to it on our Facebook page if we want to read the whole article. But in the article, the, the researcher, the writer, David Rosmarin, he says, My own research has demonstrated that a belief in God is associated with significantly better treatment outcomes for acute psychiatric patients. And other laboratories have shown a connection between religious belief and the thickness of the brain's cortex, which may help protect against depression. Of course, belief in God is not a prescription, but these compelling findings warrant further scientific exploration, and patients in distress should certainly have the option to include spirituality in their treatment. Isn't that interesting? I'm I'm sharing that with you because my theory, my belief, is that a faith in God, faith in God through Jesus Christ, this relationship with Jesus, prepares us for trouble better than any other option out there. That having, having faith is, is to prepare you for difficult situations, difficult seasons, difficult times. And it prepares us better than the, the other options that are out there. Uh, there's a group of young adults and myself who on Monday nights are going through uh, a book. And the title just left my head. What was it? It's Making Sense of Suffering. Okay, I see it on the wall in the back. And that's why I was able to recall it. Um, making, sense, or no, making Sense of God. I think that's what it says. Making sense of God. Also, I'm getting older, and my eyes are getting worse. That's fun times. Fun times, everybody. Um, making sense of God. That's what it is, and it has the title "Skeptics." And it. it's about it's about Tim. It's written by Tim Keller, and it's about kind of the big idea of this book is that secularism, kind of the belief of our broad in a broad sense of our culture, compared to Christian faith, and trying to make kind of reconcile or talk about what both of them do. We often think that secularism if we're going to give that the title for all the collection of beliefs in our culture minus God, the ones that, you know, there's a lot of this kind of worldview of what our culture has, that that operates in a very similar way to a religion in a way that we're not often honest about or think about in that way. But there's, like, orthodoxy. There's, like, this is what right belief is in our culture. There's, um, there, there's these truth claims. There's even faith claims that are made that operate sort of like a religion, And Tim Keller's case in this book is that that set of views, that worldview, does not equip people well for difficult times. Our Western culture and kind of the predominant way of thinking about our lives and what matters most and what our ultimate values are, if we adopt that whole system of belief, we are not prepared when difficult times come. And we see this in the book of Acts today. We're going to be in Acts chapter 6. We're going to start in chapter 6, and by the time we're, going to, we're done, we're going to be in the beginning of chapter 8. We're not going to read all the verses in between. Um, but we see how the early church dealt with trouble, and we see how specifically through an individual person, Stephen, who we were introduced to last week, how he handles a, an extremely difficult situation that leads to his death and how he was prepared for that by his faith. And so this is the lessons that we're going to be looking at today. So if you have your Bibles, um, Acts chapter 6 is where we're going to be. We're going to be in verse 8 in just a moment. I'm going to get there myself, and you can follow along on your paper Bibles or phones or whatever you got there. Acts chapter 6, we'll start in verse 8 in just a moment. All All summer long, we're spending our time in the book of Acts. We're telling the story of the early church. How did we get here? How do we go from Jesus and the Gospels to now where we are today? And what is the story, what is our family history, so to speak, of the church? We were introduced last week to Stephen being um, a collection of leaders, this group of leaders that were chosen amongst the Hellenist Jewish people. There was enough of a cultural gap between the, the people that grew up in Israel and the people who grew up in more of a Greek culture. There was a language barrier, and so they began to select leaders to deal with some conflicts that were, they were having in the early church. They began to select these people that had come from the Greek culture but were Jewish believers to lead in the early church, and Stephen was among the leaders that were chosen. So now we're going to jump into verse 8 of... I'm in Ephesians. Let me get to Acts. That's not going to work. That would have been confusing. Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and we'll change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. How would you like that description? Grace and power. He's full of grace and power. And they're looking at him and there's something about him. where He looks like the face of an angel. We're going to continue now, 7, 1 through 3. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. And we're going to hit the pause button there, because what follows is two full pages in my Bible, and it's the longest sermon recorded for us in the book of Acts. We're going to jump in towards the end of the sermon, and I'm going to give you like a one-minute, two-minute recap of the verses that we're, we're going to be passing over. I encourage you to read them. Um, at another time, but it would have taken up a big chunk of my sermon time if I would have read them all right now to you. So the the kind of recap of of where he's going with this sermon is he begins to, to sketch out the history of the nation of Israel and the people of Israel. And he starts with what we should all start with, which is God, the story of God, that God selected this man. God found this man, Abraham, and chose him. And to make a great nation of this man and his family, and that he would become a nation of people. And then, then there was the patriarchs, the, the sermon goes on to talk about, which is um, so Abraham had a son, Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Jacob had 12 sons. And he begins to speak about Joseph and kind of what happened with Joseph there, and then talks about Moses, and he's hitting all these highlights of the big story of the Old Testament. And you could tell by the way he's talking that he has a real grasp on the story of God's people. And kind of the way God has worked through history. The charges against him is that he wants to get rid of Moses. He wants to get rid of the Jewish faith. That he's trying to do away with all these things that are very important to the nation of Israel. And he is someone coming from this, again, this Greek culture. And the people that had the hardest time with him that initially were challenging him are people from his same culture. They eventually elevated this up to the high priest, the Sanhedrin, the council. And now he's on trial. And they say, are these charges true? And then he begins this sermon as we've been talking about, this kind of big-picture story of the Bible. And I love, I've got a kid's um, Bible that I read to my daughter called the Big-Picture Story Bible. And over and over again through it, and I've talked about this several times in sermons, so you might have heard this before. But over and over, the theme is God's people in God's place with God as their king. And if you think about these, those three phrases, God's people in God's place with God as their king, A lot of the Old Testament, you can fit into the story of this, all of these things. There's God's people and God's place. There's the promised land. There's God's people, the nation of Israel and Abraham's descendants and the patriarchs. And and then going to God's place, this promised land, you know, with God as their king. And over and over again, we see people fail to live that way with God as their king. And Stephen's kind of tracing this story through the Old Testament and speaking about the temple and the tabernacle and also the rebellion of God's people throughout a lot of Israel's history. And then we're going to pick it back up in verse 51 because Stephen's sermon comes to a conclusion. Uh, And it's this, You stiff-necked people, (laughs) uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. What a mental picture. They're so furious at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven... He cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. We're going to continue. Actually, let's continue here. Sorry, guys, I know that's messing you up, tech team. But let's read 8, 1 through 3. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered. Throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. It's a very sobering story. Also beautiful, though, the way Stephen met his, his creator, met his savior, that, and the way death is described even, it's, it's amazing. But we see this man, full of grace and power, God worked in his life in a dramatic way over a short period of time. And he ended up on the wrong side of this kind of powerful group of people that did not, that that saw Christianity as a threat, had been threatening violence for a long time, violence finally breaks out. And it's a sad story, but we see some very important lessons that we're going to see as we spend the rest of our time in the sermon together today. And the first So here's lessons from the life and death of Stephen. We'll see three lessons total. Three lessons from the life and death of Stephen. The first one is it's important to know your place in God's big story. It's important to know your place in God's big story. Stephen had this knowledge of his own story, the story of his people, the story of his nation, the story of the people of God, the story of Scripture, and he knew how he fit in it. He was able to put this all together, understanding the teachings of Jesus and then the teachings of the apostles, to understand their history, and to be able to put this all together in this one statement in front of these very powerful people. And we see that Jesus in the Old Testament um, fulfills these themes. He kind of brings this out more in in his sermon, but it's this idea, the charge against him, right, with Stephen was that he's trying to destroy Moses. He wants to get rid of Moses. He wants to just sweep away the foundation of our faith. And the reality was that Jesus was not sweeping all that away. He was fulfilling it. He was bringing it it to its fulfillment. He was embodying it. All these Old Testament things that were kind of unfulfilled and not fully understand, Jesus comes and shows them what it means. Like this is what he's doing. And this is a good reminder for us of just the importance of knowing the Scriptures, of having a grasp of our story from the Scriptures. Because um, if Stephen wouldn't have had all that understanding, I don't think he would have been prepared for that moment. I don't think he would have been prepared to meet his meet his, uh, his death in this moment where he, he was like, what is all this? What's happening? Like, I don't even understand. But he had a grasp of what was going on in the world and how he fit into it and what God's big plans were and how all that included him, how all of that was his reality as well. I've said before that to understand the Old Testament, to have a grasp of, of Scripture and the whole story of Scripture and to have read it at least once helps you know the backstory. It's like if you're a fan of the superhero movies, you, you don't even understand what's happening with the superhero, a lot of the plot, unless you know the backstory, the origin stories of these superheroes and things like that. And so in the New Testament, in a similar way, you will understand the New Testament scriptures better when you have a grasp of the Old Testament story. So I think every Christian should read through the Bible at least once, and many, many, many haven't. I think... I don't know if it's the minority, I'd say it's less than half of Christians, people that attend church regularly have read the, read the whole Bible. And so for everyone, it's a very good and a very achievable goal to read through it at least once and then maybe you can work your way up to where you're doing it annually is uh, what, I, what I've been trying to do for a number of years. But to have this grasp of the, the Bible's story will help you understand your story, how you fit into what God is doing in this world. I, another article that I came across, and again, I'll, I'll post a link to this on that same Facebook post so you don't have to hunt for it. Um, there's an article called, In a World of Narratives, Be Radically Committed to Reality. And it's a writer named Brett McCracken, who's got an awesome name. Release the McCracken. I don't know. That's great. Brett McCracken. Um, he, he talks about how our world... He, said, he, he says, the article opens this way, I'm convinced that the biggest emerging fissure in Western culture is not necessarily between political left and political right as much as those fiercely committed to reality, even when it goes against the narrative, and those who elevate the narrative, whether left or right, above reality. And then he goes on to describe examples of, of how this could look, but just this, this idea that we have, we, you've maybe heard the phrase, like, the narrative, that goes against the narrative, or there's different ways of speaking about what we're experiencing in our culture today, that are narrative-related. And there's if you're looking at this from a political lens, there's a left and a right version of this where there's this sweeping story about what those people are like. And so whenever uh, an event happens, you read it through the lens of the story about the people. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Are you following this a little bit? Okay. There's a narrative, right? It's a a story about, about supporters of this candidate or supporters of this candidate, and it's a sweeping story that when something happens, we go like, well... What I, what I believe about this group of people is this, and so I've been reading it through that, rather than trying to take the extra effort to make sure we're understanding facts and, and insight information about the different groups of people, and really something between, usually, the narratives is what we find to be true often. But he says that we're drawn to narratives in this article because we are overwhelmed. This world is complicated. And so if I can grab onto a story that makes sense of the world in some way, it's helpful. If I believe this about this whole group of people, like this giant group of people in our nation, and I, and I hold on to that, it's, it makes sense of things. I can kind of sort through this complicated world that we live in a little bit easier. Also, we love stories. Like we're just, how our brain is wired is to, to grab onto a story and go like, this tells me what the world means and how to understand this crazy world we're living in. But it can be destructive. It can be damaging. We can get the story wrong. We can find out there's fundamental facts of the story that are incorrect and that messes with what we believe about the story. And so we need to be patient enough to sort through this desire for narratives that are kind of affiliated to what tribe we belong, in, belong to or what ideology we ascribe to and the narratives that go with that and to try to find something that's ultimate, something that's truth, committed to reality in spite of this world being such a narrative-driven world. I would also say that these ideas come together here when we think about our, our faith and the big-picture story of, of God's Word and how, how we fit into that. And then if you're going to grab onto a narrative, grab onto that narrative because that narrative absolutely reflects ultimate reality. That narrative explains us. It explains the world. It explains our destiny. And that, world, that narrative, that story, changes everything for us. Stephen, in his, in his sermon, he, he concludes with this really... A harsh condemnation, um, or what comes across as harsh for this group of people. And I think, I, I'm sure he got interrupted before he offered them a chance to come to Jesus. They were so enraged at, at his claims against them. He says, you're stiff-necked people, and you've been doing what God's people have done consistently over, over, you know, all of these years, hundreds of years. Is rejecting God. Sends a prophet. God raises someone up, they get rejected and mistreated by God's people. And he says, you guys are doing the same thing, you did that to Jesus. And they are furious about it. And it's almost like his trial becomes their trial. He's saying, you're, you're, you're putting me on trial for trying to do away with Moses and all of this. But hey, the reality is like you guys have some things that you need to reckon with. And they're on trial. And their response is this just fury and rage that leads to his death. The second lesson from the life and death of Stephen is that faith in Jesus prepares us to handle trouble well. Faith in Jesus prepares us to handle trouble well. I think the ultimate test of a worldview is how does it prepare you to face your own mortality? If your worldview has no tools to equip you for that, then there's some things you should think about, right? Some major flaws in that worldview. But God changes our relationship with our own mortality. He he faces death. Stephen, we see these, this moment, it's a sacred moment where he takes his final breaths and he meets his death as the very first Christian martyr, the very first pe- person to die on behalf of Jesus and to give his life for the sake of the Christian message and for the sake of his Savior. And of course, that's never stopped since then. Thousands have continued to, to die after his death, maybe in the millions, I don't know. But certainly through Roman persecution and even around the world and even today, People are facing their death in the cause of Christ. And Stephen is given this amazing welcome. He sees Jesus um, standing and welcoming him home. And he says these words that are so similar to the words that Jesus used. And he, like, he says, forgive them. And he says, I see Jesus. And he says, into your hands you know, I commit my spirit, things like that. Like very, very similar to what his Savior uttered. On the cross as well. And he sees Jesus standing, which is a lot of commentators, a lot of theologians see that as very profound. That, that we're told in, in Hebrews that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father. But here he stands to welcome home his child. And then it described do you remember the words that we read? It said when he, when he died, it didn't say, and then Stephen died. What did it say? He fell asleep. I don't ever fear falling asleep. Kind of like it, you know? Um, he fell asleep. When death is described for followers of Christ, often this image is used sleep. It's like falling asleep. For him, death led to life, right? It was not the end of his story. He saw, before he took his last breaths, the heavens open. He sees Jesus there to welcome him. Then he goes to sleep. Jesus speaking to Martha at the gravesite of her brother Lazarus when she's just overcome with grief and in the process of mourning for her brother, before any of them know what Jesus has planned and what Jesus is about to do, he's, he's walking with her through this moment and he describes, he says to her um, about death and those who believe in him. So, John 11, verse 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Stephen is so well prepared to meet his creator in this moment that he has forgiveness for his enemies, or forgiveness for people who viewed him as their enemies. I don't think, I don't think he saw them that way. He faces death with courage, boldness, and compassion, just like Jesus did. Just like Jesus did. So our final point from Stephen's life that we'll talk about this morning is that God brings good out of bad. God brings good out of bad. Um, I, I think in our culture, I think many of you have a, have a really finely attuned fairness radar. Right where we go, something happens, we go, that's not fair. That, that, and, and in Stephen's case, we'd say Stephen was like this rising leader in the church. God was using him in a powerful way, and he died young. We don't know exactly how old he was, but he died too young, right? He died at the hand of this mob, horrible, wicked thing that happened. And we'd say, that's not fair. Like, God, it's not even fair for the church. Like, God, the church could have benefited from his ministry. Like, good things were happening through Stephen, well, imagine what could have happened if this thing didn't happen. It's so unfair, it's so wrong, it's so wasteful. When you begin to study, and I'll, I'll correct that insight here, because I, I think God had an amazing plan with what happened with Stephen. And God brought something amazing and good out of, out of this. But follow me down the path a little bit more before we get to that. Um, when, it, when you study church history... You come across stories like this often of people who were like these shooting stars, where they they got they're so full of passion and promise and grace and goodness, and God is bringing things out of their life, and then they die way too young. There's a few stories I've kind of shared over the years. Uh, there's a story of William Borden of the Borden Milk Company. Like his family had was very wealthy from their dairy business. And he was this guy who was, had all of this promise. He was, he was going to inherit tons of money. He gave, gave away his fortune and decided he was going to go and be a missionary in China. And he recruited tons of people to go with him. And was just this, this someone that was so passionate, so in love with Jesus, and then he gets sick and dies when he's barely on the mission field. It's like, what, what a waste. What is that? Jim Elliott who goes to Ecuador to share his faith with these, uh, this tribe that's been unreached. And, and, and he goes and he dies when he barely has made contact with this tribe, is killed in this attack, him and his, his fellow missionaries. Oswald Chambers, who died when he was, he was 43 during the First World War, um, was this guy who was a young pastor, full of promise, went to go minister to these Um, young British soldiers on the battlefield in Egypt. So he's at this YMCA camp and he's there as sort of a chaplain and he's gathering all these young men that are facing their own mortality and he's teaching them about Jesus and he's packing out these Bible studies, sharing his faith with them. And then he starts to have this pain in his abdomen, but he knows that there's a battle about to happen and he doesn't want to take up any hospital beds that might be used by these young men that might get wounded in battle. And so rather than going to seek medical care, he's like, I think I can tough this out. And it turns out it becomes so severe that he has to go to a Red Cross hospital. He's got acute appendicitis. They remove his appendix, but it's too late. It looks like he's going to rebound, but they're not sure. Then he kind of back and forth, and he eventually loses his life, leaving behind his wife and his four-year-old daughter in Egypt. What a waste, we think. I, I, but the point, number three, I told you is that God brings good out of bad. In each of these cases, these things that we go, when we think about just from our sense of values here in our culture, and we go, wow, why would God let something like that happen? These stories have happened long enough ago that we get to hear some amazing blessings that have come out of each of them. And I encourage you to read William Borden's story and Jim Elliott's story. The short version of Jim Elliott's story is that that tribe was reached with the gospel. They were, they were given radical forgiveness by the family members of, the, of these men that were killed, and... That, that tribe was reached with the good news of Jesus. Oswald Chambers, his wife, um, was a uh, stenographer, like would take the, whatever the title, I'm missing the title, but she'd take like really, like shorthand notes, shorthand notes of every single talk he gave for all those, all those years of ministry. And they were still in the shorthand note, you know, format. And she spent the rest of her life compiling them. And I've got his complete works of Oswald Chambers as a book this thick, and it's like double columns. It's tons of stuff. And many of you have read the book My Upmost for His Highest. It's one of the most famous devotionals in the world. How many of you have a copy of that or are familiar with it? Okay, My Upmost for His Highest. Like God took, like who knows if that would have happened. Would he have ever published those books? His wife spent the rest of her life putting that into print and encouraging us for, for generations where many names are lost to history. Oswald Chambers' message got out there in spite of his death, maybe even because of his death, led to that credibility of his message. God is an expert at bringing good out of bad. So what could possibly, what good could possibly come out of Stephen's death, this horrible, violent end to his life? Man, so much good came out of his death. First of all, this huge spread of the gospel. You know, the title of the series is Acts to the Ends of the Earth, and it comes from the beginning of, uh, in Acts chapter 1, I think it's verse 9, Jesus said, you will be my witnesses, and you'll go, to, you'll go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And up until Stephen's death, it was just Jerusalem. Like, they were all hanging out in Jerusalem, and they had some amazing, like, God was blessing what was happening in the church at this point, but we read it in Acts 8, 1 through 3, then They scattered persecution arose, violence broke out, and the church was scattered. And then they went to Judea and Samaria and began to the ends of the earth. So that even this persecution led to the spread because as these Jesus people began to leave Jerusalem and go everywhere they went, they also went with the message of Jesus. And these people who thought they were maybe just escaping for their lives were now all missionaries going and spreading the gospel wherever they gathered Tertullian was one of the leaders in the early church, and he, he said this, "The blood of the saints is the seed of the church." He was talking in the days of the Roman Empire and talking about how God had used even persecution to bring incredible good and, and message of Jesus, that there's something about seeing somebody who believes in that so strongly that they're willing to give even their life for it that lends credibility to the message. And, and in these places where people are dying for their faith, we often see that the gospel is spreading. It's been the case in China after the Communist Revolution. There is so many Christians. I think there's more Christians um, in China than there are in all of Europe. I might have, might have got that stat wrong. It's either maybe China and Africa or something. But the, there's, the church is growing significantly. We also see in Saul's life, right, which we all know him by another name, right, which is what? Say it out loud. Paul that there's, there's this man standing there, like, signing off on all of this. He's like, I'll watch your coats while you murder this guy. Put your cloaks at my feet. I'm signing off on this. And he, like, how do we know the story of Stephen? How do we know his sermon? How do we know what the sermon was about? It must have been Paul, right? Luke is, who wrote the book of Acts and the gospel of Luke, he's saying, I'm, I'm re- recording, he's reporting, he's going and interviewing everybody to put an account of the story of Jesus and his church It must have been Paul that he talked to about that sermon. I believe that sermon had a big impact on him, and and some theologians say that if you look at Stephen's sermon, it kind of fits with all of Paul's teaching through the Scripture, that this seems to have been something that informed a lot of the way he talked about the Old Testament and about faith and what it means to follow Jesus. Later we'll get to to Paul's story and how Jesus ultimately transforms him, because we know he he kept rampaging, Right, he kept going, and it took God this road to Damascus moment, literally, where God spoke to him and called him into his, his family. But for a while, he continued. But there was something that's sticking with him about this guy, Stephen. And how could someone face death that way? For something that, you know, this false accusation, someone he, something he was not even guilty of. How is it possible that God can bring good out of bad? I think the ultimate example of this is always going to be Jesus on the cross because God brought the ultimate good out of something that was desperately bad, right? That Jesus um, is, this, is the example of this. Like, he gives his life. He's the God-man. He's fully God and fully man and allows himself to be killed on the cross, the most innocent person ever. There's never been anyone more innocent than him on trial. And then dies this death on the cross pays the penalty for our sins, defeats sin and death. It's the ultimate example of God bringing good out of bad. And the God that does that does it with Stephen, where he brings all of these amazing gifts to the church and blessings for his people out of something bad. Saul's called into the message of the gospel. The church continues to spread geographically um, and Yeah, the good news spreads all throughout the ancient world at this time. It's amazing. So God brings good out of bad. The the three lessons we learned briefly, it's important to know your place in God's big story. Faith in Jesus prepares us to handle trouble well, and God brings good out of bad. So as you're thinking about these three points and we're wrapping up, do you know your place in God's big story? Is that, that story the overriding story for you? The story of God and creation and how you fit into this? and what God is doing in this world. I think if it is, it brings you hope. It help, helps you, prepares you even for difficult situations. Right? And the faith in Jesus prepares us for those uh, to handle trouble well. And we know that even those trouble things, those difficult things we go to, that God can bring good out of bad. And so submit those things to him. If you have something bad in your life that you're struggling with right now or something difficult, and offer that to God if you haven't. Say, God, if there's something good you can bring out of this, please do that. Please bring something good out of these difficult situations we're going through. And the ultimate example of this, again, is what Jesus did for us on the cross. And If you've yet to put your faith in Jesus, I invite you to do that this morning. I invite you to, 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 offer, to ask, offer your life to Jesus and ask for that good that he wants to offer you. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you so much for this time together this morning. You are good to us, and we are very grateful. Lord, I pray that you would help us as we, um, Lord, want to live these truths out. Help us to do that well. Help us to love you more. Help us to follow you more closely. And, and Lord, we thank you for this time together. I pray for anyone in the room who, who or those viewing online who need to put their faith in you. I pray that right now your Holy Spirit would transform them, that you would you would, from the inside out, change them and do that new creation work that you long to do in their lives. Lord, it's a, it, is, it starts with submitting ourselves, offering ourselves to you, and the transformation begins, Lord, accepting what you've already paid for and already offered to us from this amazing gift of the cross. So, Lord, if there's any who need to do that right now, I pray that right now, as I'm praying, they would be saying yes to you, They'd the old would pass away, the new would come. And Lord, we want to help them on that journey. And so, Lord, I pray that would be the case. For, for all of us, Lord, may we know your word may, so we can understand our story, so we don't need to be controlled by the stories that our culture is telling, but be controlled by the ultimate story and the big picture, the reality, the one that reflects reality for eternity, and that we get to be a part of that. You're doing something amazing through your church and through your people. And Lord, I pray that you just help us to just be, be ready for what you want to do in our lives. Lord, for any who are struggling with something very difficult this morning, um, that maybe can't even fathom how you could possibly bring something good out of what they're going through, I pray that you would give them hope in this moment. pray that you'd help them. And uh, Lord, we are so grateful that we can be a part of your family, a part of your church. I pray that you bless each and every one of um, us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.